<clears throat> Let's come before God in a brief word of prayer. Let's ask for his help as we come to the scriptures. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is nothing less than the living word of the living God. We thank you that we can trust in it. We thank you that you speak to us from it and through it. And Father, we pray now, as we come with the scriptures opened before us, we pray that we might hear you speaking loud and clear. We pray that we might encourage yourself in our God and in his word. And Lord, where we lack, we pray that we might be given the grace and the wisdom that we need to perhaps change and to address areas of our life. Father, we rejoice in the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is not a dead institution, but a living organism comprising of those who have been saved by the precious blood of your Son. We thank you that the church is the object of your affection and you love your church. We thank you, Lord, that you delight to gather with your people and we thank you for your presence with us now. Father, speak to us from your word. Encourage us, rebuke us, bless us. But Father, do our hearts good, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I'm standing here with a sore throat and a bit of a cold. It just seems to have descended upon me. And I'm going to speak about spiritual health, uh, which might be a bit safer than physical health, because I don't seem to know much about that. But I'm going to speak this morning and this evening about spiritual health. And this morning I thought we would speak about the church. And we're looking this morning at a church in Thessalonica. And this evening we will look at the topic primarily of assurance. I don't want to give us a hard time as we look at ten characteristics of a healthy Christian, uh, but I want to look at the topic of assurance and to ask ourselves, are we really Christians? Are we saved? Do we know that it's well between us and God? And I want to look at that tonight. But I thought about this subject because usually after New Year, come New Year and the January, the, everybody goes in a fitness craze. They decide they're going to get really fit and that they're going to change their shape. And then it... Uh, dulls off about February. All those folk with their good intentions die away. And then after Easter, well, the flowers come out and they decide that they're going to go for it again. And perhaps this first picture resembles you. Uh, this is us. We try to change from this, uh, get rid of the belly and so forth, and we're going to become super fit. I've deliberately covered this, this person's head. And we want to go to this. This is what we're trying to do. And how do we get that via this torture in the gym, treadmills, pumping iron, and so forth. But I'm not speaking about physical health. I want to speak about spiritual health, to ask ourselves, as a church, are we as healthy? By doing this, I'm not implying that Charlotte Chapel is in any way unhealthy, but it's good every now and again just to look at the Scriptures and to say, is there anything, Lord, that perhaps we could tweak, we could move, and, and so forth? So what I want us to do is to look at this church at Thessalonica. It was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey, and it was planted there in about three weeks, you could say. Many people were saved. The Lord uh, had done a great work there. People had responded to the gospel, and how we long for that in Midri, where I'm ministering. And he was a church. It was quite a good church, but not long after Paul was ministering there, you remember there was persecution arose. Paul had to leave the city very quickly because, as they were saying, they were turning the world upside down. You can read this in Acts chapter 17, which is the background to this. And Paul had to leave. But because this was a new church, he was very keen to find out how they were doing spiritually. And 
uh, Timothy, he eventually sends Timothy back to see them and Timothy brings a report. Let's look at chapter 3 and the verses there. He says in chapter 3 verse 1, When we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by yourself in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. And another reason, in verse 5 here it says, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. And he was afraid that they'd been tempted and had fallen. So he sent Timothy to, to find out, how is this church doing? How healthy are they? Are they good? Are they doing well? Or are they, have they fallen away? And he sends Timothy along to see them. Now, that Basically, Timothy returned with a good report. There were problems. One or two folk were grumbling about Paul, saying he was just in it for himself. He was selfish. He was self-seeking. Others were being tempted by immorality and so forth. There was those problems. And there were others who were so excited in their new faith. They were giving themselves to Bible studies and almost neglecting their nine-to-five jobs. And Paul has to address this as well that the Lord will return, but they still need to work for a living and so forth. And there are various other issues that Paul addresses very briefly. But what I want us to do, because basically the church was in good form, even though it's young, even though many of them were saved out of paganism and from a very difficult background, the church was basically doing not too bad. So what I want us to look at very briefly this morning is seven characteristics that come out. There are, it's not an exhaustive thing, there are more that we could probably focus on, but there are seven things I want us to look at and to maybe learn from this morning. I've likened them to an institution or a building or, or something like that. And, uh, and the first point is this. The Church of Jesus Christ is like a workshop. And here you see a picture of a workshop. And, and the verse that, that we're focusing on for this one is verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your hope uh, inspired, uh, endurance inspired by hope. Here you see a group of people who are working. Three key words here, work, labor, endurance. And basically, in that one uh, point, you see something of the nature of the church. The church is not just something you attend and you fill the pew and you disappear, especially if you're a Christian. The Lord has given us all gifts and all abilities, uh, spiritual gifts. Some, for, for some of us, it takes a long time to determine whether we're good with children or we can preach or teach or whatever that is. Uh, but we need to find what we are good at and to use them in the church. And here was a church that worked, that labored, that endured. I don't know the policy of, of Charlotte Chapel here. I know many people get baptized and I'm always encouraged to hear saying, well, I'm being baptized because I am obedient to the Lord. The Lord has, has convicted me and I want to be baptized. Uh, it's nice when Christians say I, the same when they come into church membership. I want to join a local church and use my gifts and abilities in that church to serve God, to work and to labor and to, to further the kingdom of God in a locality, in a local church. And that's always encouraging when that happens. And uh, 
And it's good when that happens. And here is a church here that, that, that labors and works. And look at the motivation. It is work produced by faith. That's where we get our motivation for working. That's why you want to, to, to serve in the church, because you have faith in God. You believe this is the word of God. You believe he will return. You believe in the local church. You believe that God will lead you and guide you and so forth. And you join the local church and you work. And you do this by faith. And this, this is very important. Then you see a labor prompted by love. Now what makes you labor? What makes Christians stick at it in a church? It really is love. It really is love. And, and if you look at these, it is faith really towards God that we're thinking here. But love is, is shown towards others. In every church, there are times of difficulty and so forth. But love keeps us laboring together, keeps us serving together. And labor suggests more, and the Greek actually implies pain. It's easy to come to a church and then just leave and to attend and to be a, a spiritual gypsy or a nomad, just wandering from place to place. But to labor in a church, often at pain to yourself, often when you're not understood or appreciated as much. And... The, the, the church of Jesus Christ is this. Here are men who are laboring away, who are working away. And there are no room for spectators in the church of Christ. We have a work to do. We labor for God. And what else keeps us going? Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We endure because we are inspired, as it says here, by hope. Here were a, it was a church who worked because they had faith. They labored because they had love. And they endured because they had hope. I'm reading through Pilgrim's Progress with my wee daughter just now, and it's a job just trying to, to get her to understand what these things are. It's in a kiddies version, but I must confess I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, never tire of reading Pilgrim's Progress. I have it in four CDs. I listen to it in the car as well. Because what comes across, apart from all the wee tiny details, is you're passing through. You're passing through this earth. You're going towards a celestial city. And, and that encourages. That's what keeps us going. We don't do this. We don't labor in vain. We labor in the hope that people might be saved. Christians might be encouraged on the way there and so forth. We work to that end that many people might be brought into the kingdom of God. And I encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress again. So that's the first thing about a healthy church is we work and, and we serve God and we use our gifts. And I want to ask you, do you have gifts and are they being utilized in the church? Do you know anything about this work that this church knew of? This laboring in love for others and love for God or this endurance uh, in the hope that we have? Let's look at the second thing then. I'm going to go through them as I say. I'm not exhaustive. There's seven points and I'm looking at the clock as well. They're only wee thoughts, wee pegs upon which you can hang your thoughts. Take them away, work them through yourself. I'm only just giving you seed thoughts. The second thing is this. We are not only a workshop, the church is not only a workshop, it is a power station. Look at verse 5 in the passage we read in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, For we know, brothers, verse 4, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And how does Paul know this? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. In other words, Paul preached to these people. He knew that God was working in their midst. He had chosen them for salvation. How did he know this? Because 
his sermons or his teaching or preaching was blessed by God, that it had a powerful effect on those people. The words came with great power. Some people look upon the church today as a dead institution and it's the most boring thing and why would you ever want to go? But here is where God's power is often revealed through us to a watching world. Whether it's sending out missionaries, whether it's serving God as a church, as people come in and see the difference in us, see that, that, that we are different, that God has done something, and also primarily through the preaching of His Word. When somebody comes and takes the Word of God and God uses this Word to transform lives, to awaken them to their spiritual condition, to show them that, that they are lost and without hope, that there is a God, that He has provided a way whereby sinners can come into His presence through the death of His Son. And when they hear this, I remember sitting there when uh, Mr. Prime was preaching. It was the best sermon I ever heard. And uh, on John, if, uh, the Son will set you free. And John chapter 8. And I was blown away with this sermon. I was already saved, but the person with me wasn't saved. And I thought, wow, how could you not be saved after hearing such a sermon as that? And we need the Word of God to come with power to save. We need it in the children's work. We need it in counselling, whether it's uh, words, powerful words to convert or just powerful words to comfort. And here we see a church that had power. God came in power. He blessed their ministries. Since I've come to Charlotte Chapel, I've been very impressed by the strategies and plans that, that, that suddenly come into, into play in the elders' courts and so forth. And I think, wow, that's great. Uh, it's a well-oiled machine. But despite all the oiling that we can do, we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We need a church that is the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be praying towards that end. That whenever John or Peter or whoever preaches from here, that the Holy Spirit comes upon us and people are changed. Christians are restored back to God. Christians are set in fire for God. Non-Christians are converted. Christians are comforted. Non-Christians are challenged. Whatever. We need the church to be a power station. Do you get excited by your own church, whether you're from another church, just visiting, or whether you're part of this church, that the power that is available to you as a church through the Holy Spirit is immense. And the church is a power house. And uh, the Word of God is without doubt one of our most powerful weapons as we communicate this in preaching or in counselling. Thirdly, the church is not only a power station, but it is a news agency. And here I'm looking at verses 8 through to 10 in chapter 1. Paul came and preached and he says, The message rang out from you, verse 8, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. In other words, these people were thoroughly saved by God. God had done a great work amongst them. So much so, they didn't need to broadcast this. They didn't need to put it on the internet. They didn't need to get glossy brochures with their testimonies on it. People just knew. Folks knew the difference in these people. And it began to spread out. And here, they didn't need to employ the, 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 a local newspaper to tell others what had happened. It became known. People were talking about it. The Lord's message rang out and so did their faith. Lives were changed. And it was very evident. And people were talking about them. Didn't need anybody to defend them or to explain. 
people knew what had happened. What had, what had happened to them? See in verses 9 and 10, you have some of the greatest definitions of what the gospel is all about. Look at verse 9b. They tell us, or they tell, how you turn to God from idols to serve, not that word serve, it goes back to the workhouse again, to serve the living and true God. You can't be a Christian and, and be lazy. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There is a, a definition of the gospel and Christian behavior. And people were knowing what had happened to them. They had been delivered from idols, following the teaching of the world, to following the teaching of God. Their lives were different. They were changed. They didn't need to tell anybody. People could see this. And the word of God was going out in great power. People knew about this church and they were talking about it. Are people talking about us? Whether it's Midway, whether it's your own home church, whether it's here, for the right reasons. More than just, boy, there's a lot of numbers come along there. But, boy, there's things happening in the lives of these people and so forth. Do they recognize us as being different and so forth? When God does a work, it's always with a view to others knowing about it. It's not for us just to keep it to ourselves. It's that others might sit up and take note that God is real. There is a God and apart from Him there is no other. And God always does this. Paul said this in Romans, didn't he? First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you because your faith is being reported all over the world. I wonder is our faith even being reported in the workplace or in our families? Are people, uh, are we communicating in that way or is our communication of the gospel communication of the Christian life suddenly dried up and we've just become uh, dull and boring. Here, it was like a news agency. The word, the word was spreading either through conversation or just through their own conduct. Fourthly, moving swiftly on, we come to uh, another picture of, of the church as a family and as a home. And we're into chapter 2. We're only picking out some things here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Let's read those verses. In this letter uh, to this church, Paul really reveals his heart. He doesn't just come with all his authority and, and claim that, that they should obey and so forth. He comes very much with his heart laid bare. And it comes across in this epistle and it comes across in these verses. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Paul, in the space of three weeks, had communicated his love and his affection to this church. And notice some of the words that he uses here. I've highlighted them there on the screen. Gentleness. I wonder if that can be said of us. Uh, do you feel that, that this is a family or a home? Some folk come in and one of the, the most impressive things is, is that they, they sense the love. They sense that somebody's interested. They sense that people care for one another and support one another in prayer and help one another. And Paul felt like this. He was gentle among them. I wonder, does this describe us? Does it describe us as elders? That we are gentle or are we overbearing and so forth? Like a mother caring for her little children. And otherwise, we loved you so much. I just want to challenge you. Does your church 
feel like this to you? Does it feel like a family? Does it feel like a home? In times of, of difficulty, do you know the help and support of one another? It's one of the greatest things in the church. Before I became a Christian, I was attracted to Christ, but not to the church. The, the, my real local church was the most boring place you could ever want to be. And uh, I went kicking and screaming until I became a Christian. People that I thought were boring and dull, suddenly they had experienced what I had experienced. I could speak to them and communicate to them in the same wavelength. They began to pray for me. They began to, I began to pray for them and we began to grow. And that's what it's like being part of a family. That's one good thing about joining a church. You become part of a family where you're cared and nurtured for. And how we need to do this. Care for one another. Share and to love. I wonder, does this describe us? Does this describe our dealings with each other, especially as leaders? Gentle, caring for one another because people are dear to us. Do you have people in this church that are dear to you? That, that you just, they just help see you through difficulties and so forth? Or do you feel very much alone? The church is to be a family or a home. Fifthly, we come to another picture that Paul mentions here in chapter 4 of a school. Many people think that's all churches are. Indeed, I've heard they said of Charlotte Chapel by somebody outside. They said, well, uh, teaching here is great. And it is. The Lord really blesses this church with great pastors. Well, the teaching is, is powerfully blessed. But is this all it is? We are a family. We are a workshop. or these other things. But a school is very much part of a church where you are taught. You come here not just to sing. You come to hear the Word of God. To be taught according to the Scriptures. How you may live your life. How you may regulate your thinking. And here in this passage here, in chapter 4, he, he speaks to these new converts. And he teaches them, and he, what does he teach them? He teaches them three things under this heading of, of a school. And this is often how we are taught in, in any church. First of all, in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 4, they are taught how to live before God. How, how their relationship is to be before God. And here he's very much dealing with the topic of holiness. Their own personal holiness. God just doesn't want to teach us about premillennial dispensationalism or whatever dispensation you, you, or whatever teaching you might have on the second coming, whether it's premill, amill, thanksamill or whatever. Uh, you, he wants us to be holy. Above all, he wants us to be holy. And the Lord, uh, in any teaching, it is towards that end. How to live before God. And notice what Paul begins with here. It's the most amazing thing. If you are writing to a new Christian or a new church, what's the first thing? I'm sure if it was me, I would start teaching them about the Lord's table and tithing and, uh, and various things, reading your Bible and praying. Paul jumps right in and says, sort your sex lives out. Sexual immorality. We heard from the pulpit just a few weeks ago how this is a real problem. It's always been a problem in, in, in the churches, always been a problem in the world. You look at any, almost any of the letters and they deal with, with uh, the church trying to be pure from the environment in which they live. And often it's immorality, often it's sexual immorality. And Paul here, right in verse 3, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. He's teaching them that you should avoid sexual immorality. If it was true in Paul's day, it's certainly true today. It's one area of your life, if it's not in check, 
it will hinder your walk with God. I certainly heard from, well, certainly won't name this person, very, very well-known uh, preacher, world-renowned, uh, and he's even been in this pulpit, and uh, I remember him sharing with pastors. He was channel hopping, and he came across a channel that he shouldn't have, and he lingered there longer than he should have. And uh, he confessed this before the men, and then he, he moved on. And for days, his ministry was hindered. He, he couldn't function as he should have until he confessed this before God. I think this is such a, a big area of our lives, if we're talking about being a healthy church, that this is not something that we say is, is completely unrelated to my ministry in the church. It's not. And Paul deals with this, teaching how to live before God, sort out your sex lives. Sexual immorality. If it's a first principle then, Paul begins with this. He, he taught them this when they were first saved. We don't have it. We have pushed to find a, a book on the first steps of the Christian life that deals with sexual immorality. Yet Paul deals with it. He dealt with it when they were saved. Sort this area of your life out. So that's chapters, verses 1 through to 8. And he even says, therefore, who rejects this instruction and so forth. But then, in verses 9 and 10, he tells them not only how to live before God, as, as, as any church does teach, uh, as a school, he teaches them how to live before each other. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you. Boy, that is a statement, isn't it? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. What happens when you become a Christian is that God pours his love into your hearts. That's uh, very much what happens. You have a new love for God. A God that you didn't know. Suddenly you not only know, but you love. And you have a newfound love for Christians. Uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that needs to be cultivated. And that's why Paul says, yes, you don't need to be taught this. God has taught you how to do this. You don't sit down with somebody. You cannot take somebody who's not a Christian and expect them to behave as a Christian. In other words, love with the love of Christ. You need the Holy Spirit for that. And here, Paul says this. You don't need to be taught. You've already been taught this. But we urge you more and more to do so. And this is something we need to work on. How to live not only before God in holiness, but how to live before each other in love and understanding and compassion in their relationships with one another. And if that is wrong, everything else will suffer as well. So he teaches them this as a school. And uh, thirdly, he teaches them how to live before each, uh, how to live in the world. Look at verse 11 and 12. So he teaches them, and this is what you'll hear in most churches, how to live before God in holiness, how to live before one another in, in love, but how to live in a world, in a pagan world. In verse 11, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. In other words, we are to be as lights shining in darkness. We are to let our good deeds be seen before men that they may glorify God. So here are three areas that the church teaches how to live before God in holiness, how to live before one another in love, and how to live in a world that is watching, that is watching us, that is lost and without hope, how to live in a, in a world 
that doesn't know God. So there are five pictures. Let's move on. We've got two more to do. Sixthly, the church in this uh, letter to the Thessalonians is pictured not only as a, a workplace or a power station or a news agency or a family or a home or a school, but also in chapter 5, verses 6 through to 8, as a barracks, an army barracks. Look at verse 6. So then, chapter 5, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. And here you see a picture here of soldiers, whether it's in Iraq or wherever. They're ready. They're prepared. They've been taught about the enemy and so forth. And any church that, that, that exists doesn't just exist to have a good time together. We're in a spiritual battle. You can't have a picture of a church and not see people wearing armor. People who, as often says, the worst thing about the church is we're the only armor that fight against one another, that fight against ourselves. And that's sad. But we have an enemy in the devil uh, who will seek to discourage us. And we need to be alert. We need to be self-controlled. Ephesians 6 tells us this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And, and this is like a barracks. We are clothed with the armor of God. We are ready. We are fully aware. And yet it's amazing. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, he was always aware all the way through. John Bunyan is his writing. He's in a spiritual battle. The forces of the world are trying to keep him uh, from the celestial city. And yet as Christians, sometimes we are perfectly at home here. We are, we are just happy to stay here. And we forget we're in a battle. And when things happen to us, we don't always detect that this might be the work of the wicked one, seeking to discourage us and to destroy our witness and to destroy our faith. Sometimes we're like this cartoon uh, by uh, Larson. I quite like this. I don't know if you can read it. Uh, this reminds me of some Christians sometimes. Now Edgar's gone. Something's going on around here. There's a big polar bear trying to disguise himself as a penguin. And sometimes, that's Christians, something's happening, but we don't quite know what it is when it's obvious. Sometimes the devil is giving us a hard time. And we need to be alert. We need to be aware of these things. And saying, Lord, forgive me if I've opted out of the battle. I'm just unaware of it. And we're naive. And we're foolish. So let's put on this breastplate of faith and hope and uh, enter into the battle and be aware of these things. Lastly, the Church of Christ is a hospital. And uh, you may recognize this. This is the new Royal Infirmary. Uh, the pleasure of going around there with Mick quite recently. And a hospital. The church is like a hospital. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5. Where it says this. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. It's one thing that churches attract. We do attract people who are hurting, who are outcasts of society perhaps, that they won't fit in any other organization or club, and often they come into churches and sometimes they, they, we find them messy. They, they don't fit in with us intellectually or morally or whatever. Certainly that's the case in Nidri. 
and, uh, and it's very easy just to forget that aspect. Well, we're here to teach and we're here to preach and we're here to work, but we're here as a hospital as well. And Paul says this. He says, encourage the timid, help the weak. You will find these in every single church. There will be people here this morning who are timid and who are weak and who are frail, who are hurting emotionally and spiritually. And this is, we are to be like a hospital. Not to say, well, it's, it's just too messy. We are to care for them and to work together, seeking to be the church that the Lord would have us be. And that's very messy. I always remember an evangelism course in, in Belfast when I went to, and we were there the whole day uh, on evangelism and how to uh, evangelize the lost and how to understand them. And the whole day and the worship was great. And I remember going over to the canteen and there was this big guy. He was, he was, he was very large and he was dressed. He was a Christian and he was quite, he wasn't very, he's not the kind of guy you would want to run after. And it was funny, after talking about evangelism and how we could reach the lost, this guy went up to, he got his tray and they sat down at the, the table and everybody, call his lecturers, I've seen them all, they, they bypassed this guy. They just didn't want to sit next to him. They went to another, and this is an evangelism. And I thought, Lord, there's something wrong. If we can't sit next to a brother in the Lord who might be very different from us visually, there's something wrong. And this, this happens a lot. I've been to more evangelism conferences than, than I can name. And I don't always get it right. I shun maybe people who seem strange to me. And I made a point. I got it right on that occasion and sat next to this guy. And what a blessing he was. He was a mind. He was a university lecturer. He, he, was, he, was, he was a good guy. Spiritually minded. I was blessed by being in his company. And everybody just, just bypassed him. We are to be like a hospital, caring for those who are shunned by others. What have we said? Here, by and large, is a healthy church. New, exciting, invigorated, and Paul picks out various things. He likens them to a workshop who work and to labor and to endure. They put God first, and they serve God by faith. They serve others out of love, and they endure because of the hope of Christ's return. That's what keeps them going. They want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. They're like a power station. There's power in the church where the power of God is unleashed through the preaching of the word and as we counsel and so forth. They're like a news agency. From there, their faith was being communicated to all by the people they were. And they're also like a home or a family. They felt uh, where they were cared for and nurtured. They were like a school where they were taught in the church how to live before God, how to live before each other, and how to live in the world. And they were to be like a barracks. A barracks, alert in the battle, not sleeping, not uh, asleep to what's going on around about them, but ready to respond to, to the warfare that they are in. And they're like a hospital where people are cared. It's like a field hospital cared and put straight back onto the mission field, put back into, into service once again. I wonder, can this be said of us? Can it be said of Midri? How do you play your part in seeking to fulfill these things in the life of the church as the believers here sought to fulfill these things in the life of their church in Thessalonica? May the Lord help us to be the church and the people that the Lord would want us to be for his glory. Let's sing together.